with Waffle, I was finally given the gift of the world back and I could explore it and see it and know that what I saw was what other people saw and what I was talking about, other people were seeing too. And that is a language that we don't often think of as privilege, but it is. Animal lovers, welcome back to Rescued by a Dog, the podcast about dogs who have actually saved their owners' lives. I'm Laura, as always, host of the podcast and author of the novel, Not Just a Dog. Today's episode is sponsored by a fantastic dog enrichment company called Soda Pup, which specializes in American-made, FDA-compliant dog toys and enrichment products. Their fun and innovative dog toys and enrichment products will keep your dogs happy and engaged for hours. To make your dog's playtime more fun, go to sodapup.com and use promo code RESCUED15 at checkout for 15% off your next order. Now we're going to hear an epic, deeply compelling story from the amazing Kate Spear, former CEO of The Doggist, and her incredible superhero floof, Waffle. Hello? Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? There Great. You are. So much to get into. Thank you. So much to get into. Why don't you tell me the name of the dog we're going to talk about today? What's their name? What do they look like? And how much do they weigh? Ooh, love. Oh, we're going there. Or we're really? Going. We're sizing. Love it. Size it up. Okay. Waffle, who is, she's actually Waffle the second. Her full name is Waffle Nugget Ellis. Lutz, which is absurd, but she needed a bad girl name. <laughs> I believe in the bad girl middle name, even though I only do positive reinforcement training. <laughs> um, but yes, she is a Bernice Mountain dog. How do you describe a Bernice? That's so good. They're beautiful tricolor bears. They are the derpiest, dorkiest, most loving, stubborn working dogs. Today, she is eight and a half years old, and she weighs 94 pounds. So she's a, a big, beautiful, fluffy girl. Okay. So I think it makes the most sense for you to talk a little bit about what was going on in your life before you met oh. Waffle. Yeah. So, ooh, okay, where do you want to start? Uh, so I've lived, God, how do you even want to dive into that? I've lived with mental illness since I was 13 years old. I was first officially diagnosed when I was 16, but depression showed up um, my freshman year in high school, just started crying all the time. And so mental illness has always been a part of my lived experience. I wouldn't call it my identity. I've never thought of mental illness as anything other than a human reality. And I think in that regard, I've been very blessed because I was able to navigate my life thinking it was entirely normal. <laughs> which again, 20 years ago, it was not. And the way I talked about it was not normal. And I was very stigmatized for the advocacy I started doing when I was about 15. But it was my truth. I just believed people have emotions and some people have different emotions and they all belong and they all deserve to belong. So throughout high school, I was treated for depression and then I went to Middlebury College and the first semester at Middlebury, I started exhibiting symptoms of bipolar disorder. For people who are unfamiliar, that means I would have a really elevated mood. So I would just seem giddy and wild. 
And I would also have the energy and capacity to do things that were not in my nature. So I did things like run the trail around Middlebury, just 30 miles without training. I wrote a 12-page paper that my professor thought I'd plagiarized (laughs) because it was so good. And I also started having these volatile mood shifts. So I'd be really happy and then really sad and then really happy and then really sad. And then I would also rage. So have these really angry outbursts. By the end of that first semester, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder type 2, which just means that you have this really high, happy mood, elevated, activated, manic state, and a lower depressed state at a more frequent cadence. So that's the difference between bipolar 1 and 2. And I went on to be treated for this condition for the next 10 years. Over the course of those 10 years, I took many medications. I received electroconvulsive therapy. I struggled with suicidal ideation and psychosis. I hallucinated a variety of demons, a variety of really dark manifestations of my body being harmed or terminated. Only when I was 28 um, did, and I was about to be sent to a long-term residential program and got in a last minute appointment with a trauma specialist, did it come to the fold that I actually was misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder back at Middlebury. And that all of these symptoms, so the psychosis, the rapid cycling, the manic breaks, the rages, all of that was actually a medication uh, interaction. So I basically was tripping for a decade Uh, due to the misdiagnosis that occurred when I was 18 years old. I had spent the last decade testing if people were real by walking through them. So the only way I knew if someone was real or not was to try to walk through them. And it was just the, quote, game I played. And I did it at Middlebury College. And basically my thinking was, if I run into them, I get to laugh and I never laugh enough. And if I don't, I know. So that's a very neat way to steal with a bow, a very, very dark decade. To give an understanding of how dark that was, I was in and out of a psych ward 21 times. I was institutionalized sometimes for summers at a time. When my parents, who were both doctors, would travel, they would hire nursing staff that they worked with in the hospital. Um, to watch me because I was on suicide watch so consistently. Um, And basically, by the time I was 28, I was in such a state of disability that the plan was for me to live the rest of my life uh, in a long-term locked psychiatric unit. So the understanding was my condition was so critical And I had such rapid, volatile mood swings. I had self-harming and suicidal tendencies. I had survived an attempt at this point. And I had such unpredictable symptoms that basically I needed to live in a high-intensity, completely locked unit for my own safety. Um, But I got really fortunate. And the doctor who was actually called to manage all of the psychologists and psychiatrists when 9-11 happened. So this is a renowned trauma specialist, was willing to take me 
on as a patient. And he was the one who discovered the misdiagnosis. And I then spent the next three years coming off of medication, doing behavioral therapy in the form of exposure um, exposure therapy. So exposure res- exposure response prevention therapy. <laughs> I'm always getting tongue-tied on that one. I don't know why. <laughs> so the story really begins with Waffle when I was agoraphobic, disabled, and had just gotten my first job. And this first job, while most people have like a first professional job after they graduate from college, that's like a typical 40-hour work week. My first job was four days a week for one hour at a time as a research assistant. And was all I could do. And I did that. And I went to therapy. And at therapy, I learned exposure response prevention therapy, which is a behavioral intervention where an individual literally builds out an entire list. Sounds terrifying, but it's true of all of their fears. And then the care team. So me and this therapist ranked all of those fears. And then you slowly day by day, you do the quote, easiest. Is there such a thing that's easy with fear? No, but we'll pretend <laughs> first. And you expose yourself to that stimuli. So for me, the first thing I used to do was I would get dressed and stand behind my door. And I was so terrified standing behind my door that I actually was scared. The idea of leaving my apartment at this point, I hadn't left in daylight other than to go to my job and back. And every time I left, I had to wear diapers because my body had such a severe fight or flight response that every time I was activated, I defecated. So my first exposure was to get dressed and stand behind the door, just thinking about walking out the door in daylight. And I did this for months. (laughs) And after doing this for months, my body finally learned that this act even this thought about leaving the house was actually safe for my body to do. So what one is doing is exposing oneself to that stimuli, feeling this fight or flight reaction in your body, sitting with the anxious thoughts that you think in response to those physical sensations, and learning that your body and your mind can handle it. And once you do this over and over again, your body actually literally changes. Your brain changes in terms of its neural pathways. And so I went from standing behind the door to standing in the doorway. My neighbors thought I was totally nuts, which I was, and I'm very okay with that. I'm very proud of it. It just means I'm strong. And then I went to standing behind the apartment building by the dumpster. And this just went on and on. And so I did these for years. Um, And I would expose myself to the fear and I would grow through it. And this is why I fervently believe fear is an opportunity and it is how we move forward and grow beyond the pain that we are in. And I also think this beginning coming from this place of such deep disability where even standing behind a door was terrifying is a large part of the reason I was able to recover and work as hard as I did throughout my recovery. Because my comparison was such a level of debilitation that everything else felt like a gift. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm outside. Wow, this is amazing. (laughs) Is it raining? 
Sure. Is it hailing? Maybe. I don't care. I'm outside. And so I think that dynamic is one of those things that a lot of people don't understand. Like, how did you keep going? Like, why did you work this hard? Why did you literally poop your pants repeatedly for years doing this really uncomfortable work while you had panic attacks? And the truth is because I wasn't in a locked psychiatric unit, because the alternative was no freedom at all. And I did this behavioral therapy for about a year. And throughout that time, I started meeting people and it was terrifying. And I actually made a few friends, a few friends who actually also had anxiety disorders, nowhere near as debilitating as mine, but they understood it. And so they really welcomed me in. And through one of these friends, I met my now husband, Dave. Dave is a nerd. He is a professor of environmental science and had a dog growing up and is just, he saves moths. Let's just put it that way. Like moths generally live sometimes less than 24 hours. And if there is one in our house, he will catch it and he will bring it outside because you never know it needs its 22 more minutes of life. And that's how beautiful of a man my husband is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and sensitive, important, but, and so, so he and I got together and he also has anxiety. And so he was really sweet in supporting me through this time. And I was very transparent with him about how I was struggling. And we started getting recruited by my parents to watch their Bernie Mountain dog, Sophie. And what transpired was this realization of both Dave and myself that I was by far my happiest self and my best self when we were with Sophie. And it became clear very quickly to both of us that there was this innate safety I felt with dogs, which has always been the case since I was a very young girl. I grew up with a learning disability and every day after school, I would run home and lie on the floor with our dogs because it was okay. It was safe to be all of me with our dogs. And the dogs never bullied me. They never made fun of me. They never made me sit in the hallway. It was just okay to be who I was, exactly as I was. And that safety really offered me this foundation to flourish. And so Dave and I decided, this is literally a year after I had been told I would spend the rest of my life disabled, locked in a psychiatric unit, we decided we were going to get a dog. And honestly, I I don't even think I thought about it. It was just, I was going to have a pet and I was going to have a companion and someone was just going to be there with me and they were going to love me as I was, which felt revolutionary. My parents thought we were insane. <laughs> so did my care team. So did all of our extended family. They had witnessed me in and out of psych wards. They had witnessed me barely functioning. A lot of them hadn't seen me in years because I struggled so aggressively with leaving the house. So this whole idea of this person who could barely take care of themselves and barely hold down four hours of work a week, getting a puppy, not a dog, a puppy was just absurd. (laughs) Um, But If there's one thing I have built my entire life upon, it is that I exist to prove people wrong. And so everybody's absolute (laughs) steadfastness in this kind of rejection of getting a dog just made me dig my heels in that much (laughs) deeper. So we brought home Waffle Nugget Ellis Lutz on (laughs) Valentine's Day. 
And, and this was in 2015 and man, she was the cutest little nugget. Um, she's named Waffle after my dad's first dog who was in Newfoundland and my dad's first dog Waffle used to babysit him. And when he'd go swimming, Waffle would rescue him. It's like my grandmother would just be doing whatever down by the lake and Waffle was a newfie and would just jump in and paddle my dad back to shore. And I just loved that idea that you could have a dog love you and save you that much. Little did I know um, that our waffle would do the same, but, and I can't believe I just realized that that was never a part of the equation. It was just that I always loved the name waffle. So waffle comes home and holy wow, she was a puppy. She chose, you know, she was chewing drywall. She was howling at all hours of the night. This is also when my husband was just become, like teaching his first academic class. Like it was a total disaster. And I wish I could tell you it was perfect and all sunshiny. It was not. My parents had to show up. They ended up having to do nights with Waffle. My little sister, who was actually around, used to take her for multiple days just because we couldn't keep up. But after a month or so, once we finally were able to build a sleep hygiene routine for her, and Dave and I were finally able to sleep as well, the strangest thing started happening. And that was that she would run across our tiny little cabin and hurl herself upon me. I called them fluff bombs because she was the cutest little fluff. But she would do this Every time I saw one of these hallucinations. And so at this point, I'm still coming off of medication. So basically, I'm still tripping. So the medication side effects induced what was really more like a drug trip than anything. And she would curl herself upon me. So, of course, my husband, who is a PhD, came home and I was like, you're not going to believe it. Our fluffy, wild, wall-chewing dog can tell me when I am seeing hallucinations. (laughs) And he is, as I told you, a moth saver, so kind to his core. He didn't diminish me entirely, but he definitely did one of those little pat on the heads like, okay, sweetie, (laughs) like, sure. (laughs) But again, I'm here to prove anyone wrong. So, I went to Baker Library at Dartmouth College, which is which is where my husband teaches, and I took out all these books on the history of dogs, and I read about narcotics-sniffing dogs, and I also read about bomb-sniffing dogs, and then I also took out all these books on human biology. And I read literally all about the things that happen to a body during hallucinations, in addition to the way that dogs' noses and olfaction works. And so I realized very quickly that there actually is something biologically going on within me, that I'm having a fight-or-flight response to these stimuli, and that dogs really can smell changes in cortisol. So this was, again, eight and a half years ago. So service dogs had yet to be normalized anywhere near to the extent they are now, which is awesome. And yet back then... I don't even think I thought of the word service dog. I'd only ever seen mobility service dogs, so guiding dogs for people who have visual blind impair, visual impairment. And so really I was just thinking, oh my gosh, if I could know 
what is real and what isn't real, I could live a really different life. I could maybe survive far better than I had before. And to really anchor your understanding of how powerful this this had the potential to be, I thought, oh my gosh, what if this dog could be the one who tried to walk through the hallucination instead of me so I didn't have to bump into people? And I didn't really tell anyone about this other than my husband, but I was like, I'm going to train her. She's doing this. I'm going to do it. And so I built out a spreadsheet and she kept doing her fluff bombs. And so after a few months, still the spreadsheet, I show my husband and I'm like, she's doing this. I'm doing this. And he was like, okay, like totally support you, whatever. So I did what any normal person in Vermont does. And I went to a local meat shack. Any Middlebury kid knows the meat shacks of Vermont. They're very important. And I bought 10 pounds of bacon. And I did the only thing I could think of, which was every time I had a panic attack, I would take that shirt that would smell terrible. It's like if you've ever smelled smelled nervous sweat, that's what I basically bottled up in a Ziploc and I'd freeze them and I'd use these for training. So I'd open up the bag and I would basically tell her to give me a paw. And I repeated this over and over again. And she got it pretty quickly. And then we started increasing distance. So first we started across the house. Then I would go to the loft and she'd be downstairs. And she was really getting it. Then we went outside. I trained her to be able to alert to up to a mile away. So she would sprint a mile back. And what this did for me was prove that I had someone with me who not only believed me, but who could help me believe in the world. And I didn't believe in much back then. And it's hard to trust a world when so much of it hasn't been real for so long. And yet with Waffle, I was finally given the gift of the world back and I could explore it and see it and know that what I saw was what other people saw and what I was talking about, other people were seeing too. And that is a language that we don't often think of as privilege, but it is to know what is real is a privilege. And she gave me that back. And at this point, with all of this training, I started realizing, oh my gosh, I could live a life. I can get out of my house. I can do things. And This is also when I was reconnecting with photography, something I'd actually studied in college. And I was sharing her because I was unbelievably obsessed, clearly, who wouldn't be, uh, with my adorable Bernie Mountain dog. And her Instagram account started to really take off. This was back before Instagram was really cool. And it was like BuzzFeed picked us up. Huffington Post picked us up. She was just the cutest little fluff. But I wasn't talking about my mental illness. I wasn't talking about the training I was doing, I was just sharing this adorable dog. And so her account starts taking off and I started thinking, well, what about sharing my story a little bit different? Like I want to preserve this beautiful kind of time capsule of all of these adventures we go on because every day that she gave me felt like such a gift. It's like just such a newfound freedom. And what if I start my own account? So I called it Positively Kate and I first started sharing all of these beautiful barn Vermont scenes just mostly to prove to my college friends and everyone that I had a beautiful life. And I quickly hated it 
because I realized how disingenuine the entire social media landscape was. And I was someone who only followed people on Instagram that were dog accounts. And by people, I mean dogs. Like I was like, I don't want to see that you're getting engaged. I don't want to see that you're married or bought a house. Like I'm literally hallucinating wearing diapers and training my dog with a stinky t-shirt and bacon. And so similar to how I'd done exposure therapy in public settings and was continuing to do with Waffle in more public settings, I started to do exposure therapy online. So I started to share just a little bit about anxiety, about fear, about my past history with the illness. And the most amazing thing happened. People started writing me back. And I finally got brave, really brave one day. It was the anniversary of my suicide survival. And I wrote about it. And that day I got an email. Someone had found my email and they wrote a note that said, you are the difference between me being here today and me not. If it weren't for you, I would have pulled the trigger. That day I reconnected with a purpose that's always been my purpose, which is to tell stories, to connect people and to let them know that there's no wrong way to be human as long as one is kind and honest. And that day, I really committed to sharing myself with this principle that I live with very, very loudly, which is called radical transparency. Radical transparency is this idea that there is no such thing as a partial truth. There is only safety in the whole truth. And when we are our whole selves in our whole truth, it allows others to do the same and only in that space, founded on radical transparency. And there's a difference between truth and radical transparency in the sense that it's about the entire experience. So a lot of people wonder why I would tell you I wear diapers, because there's no shame in wearing diapers, because there's no shame in pooping your pants in fear. There's no shame in hallucinating. And until we normalize the whole truth, not the selective truth, we don't actually empower solidarity and community and and eradicating stigma. We actually disempower it because by selectively sharing, we're diminishing people's understanding about the whole thing. And then people can't see their whole reality in your whole reality. So I then went on to get really outspoken. I did exposure therapy online with my entire eating disorder history, went viral a few times and started getting asked to do speaking gigs. I was asked to do a TEDx talk and then started being asked to do speaking gigs more and more. And at this point, I recognized, oh, my gosh, if I want Waffle to go with me, I have to figure out how to do that. And I really wanted to figure out how to do these speaking gigs. But at this point, I was only living within the bounds of my small town. It was still hard. And at this point, I'd also talked to every single small business owner and told them my whole psychiatric history. and why Waffle was with me. And that's why she was coming into the store because dogs are not allowed everywhere. And finally, one day I actually came across an Instagram account of a Dartmouth college student who had a service dog. And I realized that Waffle actually was task trained and was meeting the task requirements for the ADA to protect us. And so I very quickly responded to all of the speaking gig emails that I'd said, I can't make it to. And I said, I could do this if you give me six months. 
And I spent the next six months building out this binder that had all the ADA's language in it and had all these examples of service dogs for different needs. Because for me, it was still so foreign that you could have a service dog that wasn't for mobility. Again, this goes to the whole mental health stigma versus physical health stigma. It is so real. And it was so ingrained within my being that I couldn't even fathom anyone would just allow me to say, my dog is task trained to help me with psychosis. I didn't didn't even compute. So I used to show up into a store and I would give these people, like I had multiple binders, I would give them a binder and I'd be like, hi, my name is Kate. This is Waffle. We are training to be a service team. Here is all your information. And like had letters from my doctors. I had health records. Like I was just giving this out like confetti. I was like, here we go. Like half my life, you know, like HIPAA would be really terrified. Let's just put it that way. But I didn't care because I was so excited to be walking in TJ Maxx with my dog. And I was so excited to be going into these other places in this community that I'd never dared even dream that I could access. And so six months passes, I actually get promoted by one of these companies to become director of sales and marketing for this com- for this coffee company. And I start doing these speaking gigs and I go to New York. So we get on the bus and we go and we give this talk. And I give this talk in front of a room full of people about the human and animal bond. And I always think of this talk as the, as the day we came out as a service team. And I told this whole room how Waffle had given me back the world and how I now could walk out my door and I could know when things were real and when things weren't. And that most of all, I knew that I was worthy of love because she was there by my side. And if people hated on me and stigmatized me and bullied me, it didn't matter because we were in it together. How does Waffle show you that she loves you? Oh, gosh. Waffle loves me in the most beautiful ways. I think the first thing Waffle does is she just shows up. I won't even know that I need her sometimes. I could be reading a passage of a memoir that just really cuts deep. Or I could be out in the woods just kind of staring off at a bird, literally. And she'll just come up and she'll just kind of sashay her booty right on up and sit on my feet. And I think that that's one of the most profound ways she shows me. Uh, There's this moment I cherish where we walked up, we had moved into this house, um, it was five years ago, and we walked up our road and we realized it was a dead end road, which we didn't know. And there's this huge field at the top of it. And we got to the top of it and just, I trespassed on who are now dear friends, lawns. Um, and I just walked out and I looked out at the mountains and then I turned around and I started walking back and I was, you know, a little bit nervous that I was going to get in trouble with these neighbors. And Waffle was just sitting there watching. And I said, you know, baby, come on, like, girl, let's go, let's go. And she didn't, she stubbornly sat there and we call this the peaceful protest. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's something wrong. Like what's going on? Like, ah, So I ran back up the hill and I turned around and there was a rainbow and she was just watching it. And I remember thinking, wow, we always have so much to learn from you. 
dogs teach you that showing up exactly as you are isn't just safe and beautiful. It is currency. It is the actual currency of joy. And I feel like there's so much power in that. She's very, very convinced she is a world-class dock diver. She gets maybe an inch and a half off the dock, like maybe. But man, her form is good. She just does the full launch and it's just the ultimate belly flop. If Waffle could understand human English, what would you like to say to her? Now you've made me cry. I think about this all the time. If I could say one thing, I would say thank you. You were perfect. We were different. We were wild. And you did your job perfectly. You saved me and you gave me my life. And there will never be the right words or enough love to express that out.